What does the term reasonable expectation to privacy mean to you? The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Here's an overview titled, What is a Reasonable Expectation of Privacy? by Jackie Lee. This is published at h2o.law.harvard.edu. Summary. The test of whether or not someone has a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy, unquote, comes from the Supreme Court case Katz v. United States, which was argued in October 17, 1967, and decided on December 18, 1967. This case extended the amount of privacy a person could be afforded based on their Fourth Amendment rights. The case, Charles Katz used a public phone booth to pass on illegal gambling bets. The FBI bugged the booth and convicted Katz using the recorded material. The FBI's argument was that because the phone booth was public, they had a right to surveil it. The Supreme Court disagreed and sided with Katz, saying that because a phone booth is a space that is expected to be private, the FBI couldn't record Katz's conversation. Justice Stewart said certain details, such as shutting the door on the telephone booth, help determine if a person intends for a conversation to be private. Thus, private conversations can be made in public areas. A more modern example, the case of United States versus Jones in 2012 deals with whether or not placing a GPS on someone's car without their knowledge and without a warrant trespasses on a person's expectation of privacy. Antoine Jones was suspected of dealing drugs, so the police tracked his movements through a GPS device they placed on Jones' car. Through the GPS, the police found the house Jones dealt drugs from, arrested Jones, and prosecuted him. Jones argued that any information obtained through the GPS should not be admitted because the information was obtained illegally. The court ruled in Jones' favor because the police invaded his personal property to physically place the GPS onto Jones' car. Quite surprising, I would say, that the Supreme Court would rule in both of these defendants' favors. But I think it's interesting and powerful as well that something that makes some legal sense from one perspective can be ruled illegal based on a broader interpretation of the law and the Constitution. I like that. Now, what does all this talk about privacy have to do with anything? Well, it wouldn't be today's topic had Edward Snowden not exposed the extent to which all Americans were being continuously, passively surveilled by United States government agencies following the attacks of 9-11. Now, I'm not talking about the surveillance prior to 9-11 that has been taking place since World War II by the NSA. There's a fantastic book written by James Banford called Body of Secrets. This book details the birth of the NSA and details its capabilities all the way up to 
coincidentally after 9-11 the author went back and added a couple pages or a couple chapters that discussed what was known leading up to the attacks from an NSA slash surveillance perspective it's a very interesting book essentially any signal that goes over the air or over a wire has been and could still be eavesdropped on and collected into massive warehouses of data this is from the book Flowing between Earth stations and distant communication satellites are millions of telephone calls, fax transmissions, television signals, and computer and multimedia data transfers. They are all squeezed together in thousands of channels. Once they have been intercepted by the NSA, it is up to the signals analyst to untwist them and make them understandable. Demodulating and unraveling the internal structure of such complex signals to recover their information content and related data is one job of the signals analyst, according to NSA. Other signals, such as covert communications, may be deliberately hidden deep within such signals as television transmissions or broken into thousands of jigsaw-like pieces and sent on hundreds of different channels. They may even be spread so thin as to be almost invisible. Within the center, many of the signals analysts have had multiple tours at overseas listening posts. Once a year at NSA headquarters, <clears throat> there is a week-long conference to discuss new ways to discover and eavesdrop on the elusive signals. The publication date of this book is April 2002. The date today is April 8th. 2023 just to give you some context following Snowden's revelations in 2013 it became a hot topic that the government was spying on its citizens electronic communications listen to what then President Obama said about what they were doing examining of ordinary Americans. Rather, it consolidates these records into a database that the government can query if it has a specific lead. A consolidation of phone records that the companies already retain for business purposes. The review group turned up no indication that this database has been intentionally abused. And I believe it is important that the capability that this program is designed to meet is preserved. Having said that, I believe critics are right to point out that without proper safeguards, this type of program could be used to yield more information about our private lives and open the door to more intrusive bulk collection programs in the future. They're also right to point out that although the telephone bulk collection program was subject to oversight by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and has been reauthorized repeatedly by Congress, it has never been subject to vigorous public debate. For all these reasons, I believe we need a new approach. I am therefore ordering a transition that will end the Section 215 bulk metadata program as it currently exists and establish a mechanism that preserves the capabilities we need without the government 
holding this bulk metadata. This will not be simple. The review group recommended that our current approach be replaced by one in which the providers or a third party retain the bulk records with government accessing information as needed. Both of these options pose difficult problems. Relying solely on the records of multiple providers, for example, could require companies to alter their procedures in ways that raise new privacy concerns. On the other hand, any third party maintaining a single consolidated database would be carrying out what's essentially a government function, but with more expense, more legal ambiguity, potentially less accountability, uh, all of which would have a doubtful impact on increasing public confidence that their privacy is being protected. During the review process, some suggested that we may also be able to preserve the capabilities we need through a combination of existing authorities, better information sharing, and recent technological advances. But more work needs to be done to determine exactly how this system might work. Because of the challenges involved, I've ordered that the transition away from the existing program will proceed in two steps. Effective immediately, we will only pursue phone calls that are two steps removed from a number associated with a terrorist organization instead of the current three. And I have directed the Attorney General to work with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court so that during this transition period, the database can be queried only after a judicial finding or in the case of a true emergency. Next, step two, I've instructed the intelligence community and the Attorney General to use this transition period to develop options for a new approach that can match the capabilities and fill the gaps that the Section 215 program was designed to address without the government holding this metadata itself. They will report back to me with options for alternative approaches before the program comes up for reauthorization on March 28th. And during this period, I will consult with the relevant committees in Congress to seek their views, and then seek congressional authorization for the new program as needed. Now, the reforms I'm proposing today should give the American people greater confidence that their rights are being protected, even as our intelligence and law enforcement agencies maintain the tools they need to keep us safe. And I recognize that there are additional issues that require further debate. For example, some who participated in our review, as well as some members of Congress, would like to see more sweeping reforms to the use of national security letters. So we have to go to a judge each time before issuing these requests. Here, I have concerns that we should not set a standard for terrorism investigations that is higher than those involved in investigating an ordinary crime. But I agree that greater oversight on the use of these letters may be appropriate, and I'm prepared to work with Congress on this issue. There are also those who would like to see different changes to the FISA court than the ones I've proposed. On all these issues, I'm open to working with Congress to ensure that we build a broad consensus for how to move forward. And I'm confident that we can shape an approach that meets our security needs while upholding 
the civil liberties of every American. You heard <clears throat> some disturbing things. Well, they disturb me. But let's talk about a few of them, particularly the Patriot Act, which sort of spawned the need for that press conference that you just listened to. And let's dig a little bit into Section 215. I was not familiar with that until getting the notes together for this podcast. The USA Patriot Act of 2001 was passed on October 26th. 2001 in response to the September 11th, 2001 attacks. We're still as patriots suffering from the results of that act that was passed barely a month after the attacks. We were still trying to figure out what the heck was going on in the world and our lives and this sweeping legislation was, was passed with very little discussion. The usual process of public hearings, markups, and floor debate was bypassed almost entirely. Many U.S. representatives and senators admitted after its passage that they had not even read the bill before voting on it. Never waste a good crisis. Before the passage of the Patriot Act, the U.S. government was limited in the individuals it could target for surveillance and the kinds of information they could request about them. For example, FBI agents could only demand records from entities that count as common carriers, public accommodation facilities, storage facilities, or vehicle rental facilities. Additionally, they could only request information that directly concerned the target of their investigation, not on people that they had come in contact with. That was before the passage of the Patriot Act. Let me read that again. FBI agents could only demand records from entities that count as common carriers, public accommodation facilities, storage facilities, or vehicle rental facilities. Additionally, they could only request information that directly concerned the target of their investigation, not on people they had come into contact with. That was before the passage of the Patriot Act. I'm reading this from bridge.georgetown.edu forward slash research forward slash the hyphen patriot hyphen act. These previous limitations on surveillance were initially put into law in response to COINTELPRO, the FBI's counterintelligence program that surveilled, infiltrated, assassinated, and attempted to discredit many domestic civil rights and political groups, particularly in the 60s and 70s, particularly black, indigenous, Latinx, communist, and anti-war groups. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court, known as FISC, was established in 78 in order to provide oversight and prevent abuse of surveillance. FISC approves or denies petitions from intelligence officials who seek to enact surveillance inside the United States. However, in recent years, observers have criticized the court for its lack of transparency. Skipping ahead a bit, ah, let me read this. Furthermore, they point out that in the 35 years that FISC has been active, they have approved 35,435 requests for surveillance and rejected only 12. The Patriot Act mandated that First Amendment protected activities, assembly, speech, practice of religion, are not allowed to be the sole basis for being targeted for surveillance. However, the agency may consider activities such as participating in a public rally, attending a particular place of worship, 
expressing political views on the internet, or buying a, a particular book, as long as those activities are not the exclusive basis for the agency's assessment. The most controversial part of the Patriot Act is Section 215, also known as the Business Records Provision. Section 215 vastly expanded the kinds of information that agents can request over the course of their investigation. Instead of being limited to the business and organizations listed above, FBI agents can request an order from FISC that requires any organization to produce tangible things, including books, records, papers, documents, and other items. In 2006, a secret ruling by FISC, how is it that a government organization in charge of overseeing surveillance on American citizens could issue a secret ruling? A secret ruling by Fisk drastically changed the NSA's interpretation of Section 215. Now, we're talking about the NSA before we were talking about the FBI. And I just read that excerpt of what the NSA is doing and has been doing ever since their conception. Section 215 requires that records collected be relevant to an authorized foreign intelligence investigation. This 2006 ruling took the broadest possible interpretation of relevant claiming that because of the NSA's contact chaining, which is collecting data from numbers within two or three degrees of separation from the individual under investigation, all data collected by phone companies is potentially relevant. All data collected by phone companies is potentially relevant. It was this verdict that authorized the NSA to demand mass phone data on millions of Americans from American telecommunications companies. In May of 2015, a federal court ruled that the NSA's bulk collection of phone metadata was in fact illegal, voiding the 2006 Fisk verdict. Now here is where we start getting into what the popular topic at that time was and something that then-President Obama was attempting to address was the collection of metadata. Metadata this is what I remember him saying was that metadata we're simply collecting metadata. We're not collecting your phone calls. We're not collecting the contents of your phone calls. Uh, well, the NSA is, but that's a different topic. We were supposed to be okay with meta bulk metadata collection because metadata was essentially the wrapper around which your text messages and phone calls and emails are contained. It's an IP address in the in the email sense and some some information on the system you're using, the internet protocol that you're using, uh, the, t the type of mail that you're sending, the type of content that the mail contains so that both ends know how to interpret it. It's it, 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 it really is a wrapper around your actual email. In the case of phone calls, it's something similar. Uh, what what um 
IP not IP address, but uh, I can't remember what it called what it's called the SIM number or something like that. The 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 unique identification number of the phone. Um, the number that it called, the length of the call, things like that. So metadata, and in this uh, in this article I'm reading, it's paraphrased, also known as call detail records or CDR. It goes on to explain that it's information about the numbers involved in the call, the length of the call, and when it took place. However, a 2016 study from Stanford shows that when phone metadata is cross-referenced with other public data sets, researchers can easily discover deeply personal information about the callers, including their identity, relationship status, geographical location, health condition, and occupation. And this is true, and this is what the popular tech conversation at the time was, because the tech community understands, the nerds understand, that depth of information is important. For example, if I happen to pass you on the street on a Monday at 1030, and I'm going north and you're going south, I really couldn't infer a whole lot of information. I don't have depth to the information. But if I pass you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at that time, I can I, I, the information gets deeper and I can start making some inferences. I know that you would have had to have gotten out of bed sometime prior to have passing you on the street. I get a sense for your morning habits. I could make some assumptions that maybe you're going to work. I could look at the time and start drawing some inferences about how far away you might live from work. You see where I'm going here? The deeper the information is, the more new information you can obtain from what seems to be very innocuous, quote unquote, metadata. The full extent of, back to the article, the full extent of the government surveillance activities under Section 215 was not made clear to the public until 2013 when Edward Snowden leaked thousands of classified documents to the press. Especially shocking to many was a top secret court order that ordered Verizon to turn over telephone data related to its customers. This was the first time the public was made aware of Fisk's secret reinterpretation of Section 215 that allowed mass collection of call detail records. Another controversial part of the Patriot Act was Section 206, also known as the Roving Wiretaps Provision. Before the Patriot Act, national security investigators needed to obtain separate court orders in order to tap every phone or computer that a suspect might use. However, this provision allowed one wiretap authorization to apply to multiple devices. In other words, it applies to a suspect rather than a singular device. This meant that innocent individuals who come in contact with the target of the tap could have their privacy violated. There's more fun in, in the Patriot Act. Section 213 is of interest. Section 411 and 412 are of interest. Fisk is of interest. The United States, this is from Wikipedia, the United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, 
also known as the FISA court, is a U.S. federal court established under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978 to oversee requests for surveillance warrants against foreign spies inside the United States by federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Hopefully you're starting to be able to put these things together and why they are the Patriot Act is probably one of the most unpatriotic things that we've done during the course of my lifetime. We've gone from having to go get a warrant to investigate a potential terrorist or a foreign spy inside the borders of the United States. The Patriot Act expanded who could be investigated under the course of a warrant from the target of the warrant to people that the target of the warrant came in contact with. Now, that's one thing if you think about a spy maybe interacting with other people who may be directly or knowledgeably involved in the act of spying. But now you can get two or three or four degrees of separation from that person. And if he stops at a gas station, and this is a bit of a ridiculous example, but feasible, if he stops at a gas station and talks to the guy behind the counter for five minutes, that guy now could be under surveillance as well, under the, under the guise of, of the warrant. Now you apply this to electronic communication. Think about Facebook. Now, before the Patriot Act, if you were Facebook friends with a terrorist, you might be surveilled. You might fall underneath the auspices of of the warrant. After the Patriot Act, if you were friends of someone who was friends with a terrorist. Guess what? I find it a bit fallacious that the metadata, the bulk metadata collection that became a popular topic then was able to step right around the fact that it didn't matter what the FBI was doing with the information that they received from cell phone service providers. Didn't even... (laughs) Because the NSA had already been collecting that information already. What they... I'm thinking I could be I, what, what I was about to say was that they couldn't get the metadata. All they could get was the raw data being streamed via satellite, landline, fiber. But the metadata, there's enough metadata streamed there. Yeah, they, they had it. They had it. So they were already getting it. The NSA already had it. There must have been a lot of red tape or some of that non-interop 
interoperable agency things going on so that the FBI couldn't get the information from the NSA because the NSA has most certainly had it already. So what kind of information does your, uh, your phone company, your cell phone provider keep and why? There's an article on Vice uh, published October 25th, 2021 by Joseph Cox. And it describes basic cell phone operation, some of the tools that the FBI uses. It talks about the FBI Cellular Analysis Survey Team, otherwise known as CAST. CAST supports the FBI as well as state, local, and tribal law enforcement investigations through the analysis of call data and tower information. When necessary, CAST will utilize industry standard survey gear drive test equipment to determine the true geographical coverage breadth of a cell site sector, the presentation reads. The presentation highlights the legal process required to obtain information from a telecommunications company such as a court order or search warrant. Well, that's not the same thing as a FISA warrant. The article explains how cell phone towers work. Um, But what, what I really gleaned from this was the provider retention periods table. Now, they they break down different types of information. There's uh, subscriber information, call detail records, cell site, SMS tolls. I've heard of that. Oh, yeah, okay. Call site or cell site for SMS, SMS content, cell site data, tower dumps, perspective, historic, Wi-Fi calling, Volt E. V-O-L-T-E, store video, voicemail, cloud storage, internet, web browsing. These are the different categories that this chart breaks down the retention periods for. Okay. I'll kind of hit the high points here. AT&T keeps subscriber data, call detail records, cell site, voice SMS tolls and SMS messages for seven years. Cricket keeps them from 2015 to present. T-Mobile keeps that information for two years. Sprint keeps it between 18 months and 10 years. Verizon keeps subscriber data for three to five years and the rest of them for between one year and seven days. Why is this relevant? Well, because depth of information. And I remember people back during this whole metadata collection conversation were saying, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't do anything wrong. They can collect as much metadata as they want. Which is true. I get that. And I don't do anything wrong. But at the same time, I understand what you can do with depth of information. 
and to give that unbridled depth of information to a government agency is terrifying. Given enough information, and we all know how statistics work. We know that if you go listen to CNN, they could take one set of statistics and interpret them a certain way and they go to Fox and they'll take that same set of statistics and interpret them a different way. Well, isn't metadata and cell content, SMS content, sort of the same thing? It's just a big batch of numbers. And if you look at it from one perspective, it means one thing. Shift your perspective slightly and it means something different. It's even scarier. It's even scarier when you start getting into social media and people that you know and the people that they know and the people that they know. How about this? And I think I've mentioned this before. Do you know anybody who was at the Capitol for January 6th? Do you know anybody who knows somebody who was at the Capitol on January 6th? How about, do you know anybody that participated in any of the nonsense after George Floyd was murdered? You know anybody who hung out at Chaz slash Chop? Are you friends or friends with anybody? Do your kids go to school with anybody? Who may have come in contact with somebody who eventually goes and shoots up a school. This is where it gets scary. You may be the most upright, moral, righteous person on the face of the planet. And as the law stands now. Just because you might have brushed elbows digitally with somebody who went and caused some trouble. You might come under suspicion, surveillance as well. Now we arrive at our original question. Again, what does the term reasonable expectation of privacy mean to you as an American? You have it if you're in your house talking to someone in your house. You have it in public if you're having a quiet conversation with someone else in public. And while you may expect that you should have it if you are in your house having a conversation over a landline, a cell phone, via SMS or email, you do not. As you heard President, then President Obama say, your metadata is being written to a database and may be retrieved at some time in the future if your number winds up being on the contact list or friends list of someone who, quote, presents a viable threat to the United States, end quote. We already know the NSA has our electronic communication stored in their data warehouses. So I'm sure with a secret warrant from the secret FISA court, the metadata and contents of the communication could be joined and suddenly they have a perfect digital record of who you have talked to during the time span of the warrant, as well as what you have talked to them about. Now, for some reason... I got real interested in Alex Murdoch's trial. Some people say Murdoch. 
others say Murdaugh. It's spelled M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H. He uh, murdered his wife and oldest son in an attempt, as we know now, to keep the details of his extorting and stealing money over the last 20 years to the tune of like $10 million. If the, anyway, the trial has been kind of interesting. I'm not sure exactly why, but to me it has been. They, um, they brought in a police officer, I believe it was, who was familiar with a few data collection technologies that the police department uses. There's some state agencies that use it. Of course, we know the FBI uses it now. And he talked about the information that, that they retrieved from Alex's cell phone, from his wife Maggie's cell phone, cell phone and his, his son Paul's cell phone. And just using the information from those cell phones they were able to put together a pretty accurate depiction of the events that transpired that evening. The analyst talks about during his testimony that they were able to perform what he calls an extract from their phones, as well as from the GPS data from the OnStar device in Maggie's car, I believe it was. I didn't know this before I watched this trial. And I've talked about this on a previous podcast about events and how your phone handles events, what it does with the information that is gleaned from monitoring the events. What can you do about any of this? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I remember when the Patriot Act was passed. Like I said earlier, we were still trying to figure out what was going on. I mean, September 11th had happened less than a month before that. People were still being nice to each other then. It was a horrible time, but man, the world was quieter. People were much nicer to each other. People looked each other in the eye. They greeted each other with some sincerity beyond just, yeah, what's up, man? It was a ter- it was a terrifying time and it was a beautiful time at the same time. But we we let we were we were afraid and our quote unquote leaders knew that. They were afraid too, I would imagine. But we let that Patriot Act. We wanted the Patriot Act. We didn't read the Patriot Act. What 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 we heard when we heard Patriot Act was that 
the government was putting together this big sweeping legislation to protect America from any more September 11th. And we were okay then with giving up just a little bit of freedom for just a little while because we like to think here that the government is going to protect us, that they've got our best interest in mind. And I think that that was what the general consensus was when people were glad and just gladly handed over responsibility for our safety to politicians. And we can't unwind that now. Once, once you give government power, once you give government money, they're never going to give it back. When, have, when in your lifetime have your taxes ever been lowered? When have you seen the amount of freedom that you have increase? And in the United States, we have it really, really, really good here. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to castigate this country. I'm a proud citizen of this country. I am a tax-paying, hard-working American. Red-blooded American. But you can be that and still have a consciousness about not giving your power up to somebody else. And that's exactly what we did with the Patriot Act. Well, it seems that we're on the cusp of another Patriot Act. And that's going to be the topic of my next podcast, Senate Bill 686. And I've, I've seen just a little bit of grumblings about this. I believe it just came out this last week. And uh, the folks who have read through it says it doesn't even mention TikTok at all. This thing is supposed to make TikTok illegal or ban TikTok in the country. Um, but it seems like there's some languages in there about making VPNs illegal. So, I'm, like I said, I'm going to dig into that for my next podcast. But just as a little bit of a teaser or a little bit of context, which I like to provide because you may be listening to this in 2050 and not know what the heck is going on. Well, the Senate Bill 686 is, is on the floor right now. USA Today's headline says Senate Bill 686 is about control. If TikTok ban wins, we all lose. That's USA Today. TheHill.com, Rand Paul plans to block Josh Hawley bill to ban TikTok. Reuters, U.S. House panel approves bill giving Biden power to ban TikTok. Fox News, bill to ban TikTok slammed as Patriot Act for the digital age. Ars Technica, which is a technical website, a technical um facing TikTok ban bill is so broad it could apply to nearly any type of tech NBC News lawmakers unveil bipartisan bill to ban TikTok nationwide I'm going to dig into this uh, as soon as I get this podcast wrapped up produced and uh, uploaded and be recording that hopefully tomorrow Uh, folks 
smile, go outside, enjoy some sun, give somebody a hug. Thanks for listening, and um, hope you're doing well. Oh, happy Easter to those of you who celebrate Easter. Later.